We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. You can contribute at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The president has chosen much of his new team to take on climate change, and activists are cheering the pick for the EPA. She is fair, she is smart, and she knows how to play the games that seem to be played in Washington. I could think of no better person for President Obama to be nominating. We certainly agree. I mean, this is a very strong pick that shows the president's commitment to tackling the climate crisis. That doesn't mean confirmation will be easy, though. Also, why some Amish farmers are leasing their land for natural gas fracking. They're allowing this to go on because it benefits them, too. And they've got mortgages, and they're paying their bills and farming with the money that they've received from the oil and gas business. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. To help keep his promise to tackle climate change in his second term, President Obama has nominated three key cabinet officers. The president wants EPA Air Chief Regina McCarthy to lead the agency, and former Energy Department Undersecretary and MIT physicist Ernest Moniz to be Secretary of Energy. An avid hiker and former petroleum engineer has been tapped to be the Secretary of the Interior. She's Sally Jewell, who is now CEO of REI and a vice chair of the National Parks Conservation Association. For some insight, here's Mindy Luber, a former regional EPA administrator and president of Ceres, and Adam Colton, director of advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation. Welcome to Living on Earth. Steve, it's always nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Mindy, let me start with you. You worked with Gina McCarthy uh, when she was an environmental advisor to Massachusetts uh, governors, including uh, Mitt Romney. How do you think she's going to do as head of the EPA? You know, I worked with Gina McCarthy when she worked as a regulator in Massachusetts, when she worked for a Republican governor, when she worked for a Republican governor in Connecticut, and when she worked for a Democratic president uh, of the United States. And the reason I mention those partisan titles, not because I think we should be concerned about them, is because it speaks to Gina's strength. She can work with anyone, Republicans and Democrats, business people and advocates. She is fair. She is smart. She is focused, and she wants to get the job done. And she knows how to play the games that seem to be played in Washington. I could think of no better person uh, for President Obama to be nominating. Adam Colton? Oh, we certainly agree. I mean, this is, uh, this is a very strong pick, and I think together with some of the other nominations, including Senator Kerry at State, this shows the president's commitment to tackling the climate crisis and continuing the work the foundation laid in the first term. Certainly somebody who has a proven track record of actually tackling climate change, you know, with the historic agreement on fuel economy standards that she played an enormous role in helping broker with industry support, with union support, with environmental support. So this is someone who uh, is absolutely qualified, and uh, we look forward to her leadership at EPA. How tough is she? I mean, the EPA is right in the sights of the uh, Republican majority of the House. Industry is very concerned about any kind of climate regulation. She'll be writing the regulations that would presumably rein in existing power plants, a point of great contention. How is she going to be able to handle that pressure? 
You know, she is tough to answer your question, but at the same time, she's fair. Let's look at an example. Gina McCarthy was responsible, of course, with the president of the United States behind her in taking our fuel economy standards from 27 miles per gallon to 54. That's terrific, and all parties stood by it. The key magic there was, and of course there's no magic, but the strength of Gina McCarthy was finding an outcome that got the job done, took an enormous amount of emissions out of the air, and did so in a way that was good for the economy because we're finding that the U.S.-based auto companies profit more from strong fuel economy standards, and it was a proposal that industry, environmentalists, and the labor community liked. How do you get better? I think she could do that with present and future utility facilities. Adam, how do you think her confirmation process will go there? Well, I'm, we're hopeful. You know, you're not going to find a, a more experienced, more fair-minded person to head the agency. And obviously, um, the president, usually there's, there's some acknowledgement that the president gets to, to put his team on the field. So, um, you know, the fact that she's determined with the president to address the climate crisis shouldn't be a reason for people to oppose her. But nevertheless, obviously, uh, with controversy around the EPA, we're certain there'll be those that will oppose her in Congress. And it's important that everybody that cares about conservation and the environment make sure to make their voices heard in that process and uh, lend their support. Briefly, the biggest challenge for uh, Gina McCarthy in this uh, second term of President Obama? Well, I think Adam just said it. There are all eyes on the Environmental Protection Agency. So there may very well be anger and protestation having nothing to do with Gina and much more to do with the agency. But let's just quickly understand the EPA, while some seem to be gunning for it, it is the very agency that delivers clean air and clean water to all of our families. And it ought not to be a right wing, left wing, right coast, left coast, Republican, Democrat. We have got to turn that conversation around. The EPA is about making my kids safe and your kids safe. Uh, and I think that's what every single one of us want. And Gina is the right person to make sure the EPA does that and does it well. To move on to one of the other picks, uh, Adam, what do you think about the nomination of Sally Jewell as Secretary of the Interior? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a tremendous pick because, you know, we've obviously, our public lands are not just... Um, there's a lot of attention oftentimes in the fact that uh, there's oil and gas drilling and mining and logging and other activities on our public lands, but they're also just cherished by millions of Americans for hunting and fishing and hiking and biking and kayaking and all those outdoor experiences. And that's not just important to our health and recreation as Americans, but it's a huge business. I mean, this is a $646 billion industry fueled uh, in terms of economic activity, 49 billion in tax revenue generated. So, you know, a pick like someone who has headed REI and understands that linkage to our economy from protecting our natural resources is is a very innovative and exciting pick. Not to mention somebody who can hike probably longer than two of us <laughs> put together, right? And climb and do a lot <laughs> of other things, absolutely. Certainly better than me. <laughs> but consider this, I, before she was president of Recreational Equipment International, REI, she worked for Mobile Oil. And, of course, a big role of the Interior Department is to regulate uh, oil and gas drilling. How do you think Sally Jewell is going to handle that? I think her experience in the private sector, 
both at mobile as well as running a major company and building it and making it profitable and delivering jobs is exactly what's going to make her effective in this role. She knows how to build things. She understands multidisciplinary issues. She understands how to bring people together. I think it is terrific that she worked at mobile. I may not choose to work there, but she understands the needs of the industry And she's also proven to understand the needs of wilderness and what all of us want from the beautiful open space that we love to take advantage of. Okay, she cares about the outdoors. She's worked in oil. The logic says that it's awfully difficult to do oil responsibly in the high Arctic. Shell Oil just retreated from there. How do you think Sally Jewell is going to approach regulating uh, Shell and the other companies who want to drill in the Arctic? Adam? Well, I mean, uh, let's just acknowledge that uh, Shell has pulled back from any plans to pursue drilling this summer, which makes sense since they've had, you know, some some significant difficulties. And I think that, you know, we're hopeful that Sally Jewell and the president will recognize that drilling in the um, Arctic uh, Outer Continental Shelf is uh, a risk that, that ought not to be taken. And that's not the direction that the administration has been going thus far. But it's, it's absolutely the wrong course. There's too much at risk, as we learned with the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. We have, we have yet to really make all the corrections and, and reforms we need to ensure that spills like that don't happen again. But we've not come even close to figuring out how to deal with an oil spill in the extreme weather conditions of the Arctic. You know, we're confident that she'll take the time. She'll have to get under the hood of this issue and really understand it. And again, with her background in the industry, she should understand that the industry itself doesn't have uh, the proper solutions to contain or clean up a spill. We don't have any Coast Guard facilities in the high Arctic. So we're hopeful with the new Secretary of Interior, we can make, uh, make the case anew. Let's talk about Ernest Moniz. He's MIT professor who's been nominated now to be Secretary of Energy. Uh, Mindy Luber, what about uh, Professor Moniz? A number of environmental groups are concerned about his support for nuclear power. So let me first say I have got something on my colleague, Adam Colton, who's on the other end of the line, and that is, Adam, we have now have two out of three of these who are from Massachusetts, my hometown, or at least <laughs> my hometown, so it says something. But But moving on from where they hail from, I think Ernie Muniz, above all else, understands that climate change is the problem of our time that we must deal with and we must mitigate now sooner rather than later. And I think everything else he considers falls under that umbrella. Now, we, of course, share that. We have got to address climate change. Department of Energy has a very clear role in doing it, as does EPA, frankly, as does Interior. So I think Ernie Muniz frames everything within we've got to mitigate the problem of climate change. And then you work down from there. He's a strong supporter, an avid supporter of energy efficiency, of solar energy, and of wind energy. He does believe that natural gas should be a bridge fuel, and it may very well be the reality we're facing, but I don't think he believes we should have natural gas without dealing with the environmental problems of contamination from fracking or emissions from flaring. I think he knows those things have to be regulated. As it relates to nuclear power, where you started this question, he does believe in nuclear power, I a bit less so, but I don't think he believes in nuclear power at all costs. I think he believes in starting with renewables and efficiency, and that's where it has to begin. What does it say that uh, two out of three of these nominees have been um, in a number two or number three position in the agencies that they're now, or departments that they're now, taking over? Mindy? Well, there are some who might say 
it shows that in the second term of an administration, the real heavy hitters aren't taking these jobs. Uh, I couldn't disagree with that more. Knowing how to make progress and getting things done in Washington takes some experience in Washington. That's not to say I'd like to see people who have lived their life there and had their careers entirely Washington-based. And Ernie Muniz had both Washington experience and academic experience, Gina McCarthy, much experience at the state and even the local level. But you need people who could hit the ground running, who you could give a problem, who understand how to move a massive agency. EPA is 18,000 people. How do you bring people together? How do you make something happen? And I think there's actually nobody better to do that than people who have been in that number two or number three role and who have had to produce in the past. It takes a long time for a new person in Washington to figure out the rules of the game. And when it comes to climate change, we don't have any time to waste. So, Adam, what do, you, what do you think here? What kind of team do these appointments add up to? How equipped do you think that the president is going to be to take on climate change and the other environmental issues during his second term with these folks uh, leading his green team? Well, we're optimistic because there's a lot of work to do. And the president has said some really farsighted and things about, you know, his determination to address climate change. And, you know, that is, and, and in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, you know, more and more Americans have woken up to the fact that this is a problem we can't, you know, hit the snooze button on any longer. And, you know, this is, this is the team to help the president advance that agenda. We can't waste a minute, and we're looking forward to smooth confirmation so we can start uh, moving forward. Adam Colton is the Director of Advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation. Mindy Luber is President of Ceres. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Thanks, Steve. Just ahead, the future of the Keystone XL Pipeline. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Electricity, TV, the Internet. The Amish generally live without these technologies, preserving a traditional way of life. But some Amish are saying yes to one very modern, very industrial technology, hydraulic fracturing or fracking for natural gas. In Ohio, some of the best pockets of oil and gas in the east run right under Amish country. The Allegheny Front's Reed Fraser found the drilling is already changing the way some Amish there live. It's an overcast day in Carroll County, Ohio, in the southeast part of the state. An Amish farmer, dark, wide-brimmed hat, long beard, buttonless overcoat, is at work on his hillside farm. He mans the seat of what he calls his hired hand. It's a skid steer loader, a kind of mini bulldozer he uses to haul huge piles of feed corn around his dairy farm. The Amish tend to stay away from modern technology, but they do make some exceptions, and this diesel-powered machine is one example. He was able to buy the machine with a new source of money, royalties. He leased his land for drilling a few years ago. He only got $15 an acre back then. But two years ago, Chesapeake Energy drilled a well on a neighbor's farm. At around 7,000 feet down, the drill bit turned sideways and went underneath his farm, following an oil and gas-rich rock called the Utica Shale. Soon after, he began receiving royalties. He won't say how much. The farmer, following the beliefs of most Amish, wouldn't allow his voice or name to be used on the radio. But off tape, he said he saw no problem leasing his land for drilling. In his slight German accent, he says, the land was made for people to use. Many of his Amish neighbors feel the same way and have leased their land for drilling. 
rigs continue to migrate into this rural county. There are no four-lane highways here, hardly any water and sewer services, and you can forget about most cell phone coverage. Drilling represents a whole new source of income for the Amish here, says Tom Wheaton. He's a Carroll County commissioner. I'd like to see how they're going to handle it because it's, it makes a major change for people's lives. Case in point, one Amish dairy farmer. He'd been making $40,000 a year by farming. And uh, his first royalty check was for $80,000 one month. <laughs> There's worry this kind of money could have a corrupting influence. As the Amish farmer with the new skid steerer says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And even if you didn't want it, Ohio law makes it very hard to keep the industry from drilling under your land if your neighbors want to drill on theirs. The state can mandate that your land be included in a drilling unit. Because of this and simple economics, drilling is here to stay in Carroll County. It's got the most drilling permits of any county in Ohio. Every day, it seems more and more trucks hauling sand, water, and equipment crowd into the streets of the county seat, Carrollton. It's music to the ears of Amy Rutledge. She's the director of the county's Chamber of Commerce and Visitors Bureau. It's been good for her, personally. She was working part-time before the drilling started in 2011. Now, she's full-time. You see hope in people's eyes again, where it had gotten pretty depressed around here. Rutledge has seen the small Amish community grow since it started coming here in the 1980s. Many had come from Geauga County, east of Cleveland, which had experienced rapid growth in that decade. So they're moving to areas that are not quite as built up. But in a twist of irony, these areas are now on top of some of the most lucrative rock formations in the east. One nearby well produced $30 million in oil and gas. To capture this bounty, companies like Chesapeake use hydraulic fracturing or fracking. This is a process in which millions of gallons of pressurized water, sand, and chemicals are forced down a well to break up the fuel-rich rock. This is a 24-7 industrial process in which thousands of trucks are needed to bring one well into production. It's been linked with groundwater contamination and methane migration in some states, though the industry says that if it's done right, it's safe. Fracking might seem at odds with Amish life. The Amish came to America beginning in the 18th century, and they abstain from some of the technologies that Americans take for granted. But don't judge them by their horse and buggy, says David McConnell. He's an anthropologist at Wooster College in Ohio who studied local Amish communities. You know, we tend to idealize the the Amish and see them as all-natural and organic. But that's just not the case. They are not Luddites. They're not stuck in the past uh, with respect to technology use. Uh, Rather, the Amish believe that any decision about technology needs to be balanced with a discussion about the impacts of those technologies on community life. And sometimes that means embracing new technologies. That's why some Amish choose to plant genetically modified crops and use pesticides. Amish generally don't feel a need to preserve the environment for the environment's sake, either. McConnell says this can be traced back to a basic tenet of Amish life, religion. Most Amish would believe in a literal view of Genesis. They would believe that the earth was made by God and that humans have dominion over the earth. And that the earth is there for the benefit of humans, to use as they see fit. At the same time, McConnell says... 
This dominion requires the Amish to be good stewards of the land. Many Amish are aware of the environmental debates over fracking, but so far there have been no reported cases of contamination in Carroll County. Hi guys, 10 bales or 20, 10 or 20. Four bucks, a pound of a At the Carroll County auction, Amish farmers mingle around huge stacks of hay that are getting sold off. The Amish here have almost all leased their land to oil and gas drillers. A young Amish carpenter says his father-in-law built a new barn with his lease money. I ask one Amish man if he's worried at all about his water. He says, you worry about water, but what are we going to do about it? He'd leased his land to Chesapeake and said he would take the company at its word, that if anything happened to his well, the company would come back in and fix it or provide him with other sources of water. Among those milling about the auction was Kathy Garsick. Well, I came to look at hay and I love to uh, buy baby calves. She's English. That's how the Amish refer to those outside their community. She lives in the nearby town of Sayo. She works at a grocery store and has been able to live a little more comfortably because of leases on her land. In conversations with her Amish neighbors, she's learned that oil and gas money has helped them out, too. They're allowing this to go on because it benefits them, too. Uh, They have bills uh, just like we do, and they've got mortgages, and they're paying their bills and farming with the money that they've received from the oil and gas business. The Amish talk about not wanting to let the outside world in. That's why they live the way they do. But to keep that way of life, some are starting to let the energy industry, one very modern aspect of our outside world, onto their farms and into their communities. They're hoping it's a good gamble to take. In Carroll County, Ohio, I'm Reed Frazier for Living on Earth. Reed's report came to us by way of the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Natural gas supporters argue that fracking will help wean the United States off foreign oil and bolster its energy security. The same cannot be said for another controversial energy project, the Keystone XL Pipeline. Steve Kretzman of Oil Change International says that if the pipeline were to be built, the United States would hardly see any of the oil from the Canadian tar sands, as much of it would be refined into diesel for export. The U.S. State Department recently released an environmental impact statement that declared that there would be no serious environmental cost of Keystone XL. Steve Kretzman isn't buying it. Whenever anybody in Washington releases something at 345 on a Friday, you can be sure that they know that there's going to be somebody extremely critical of it. And, uh, you know, it seems that the State Department got that right, um, and they don't seem to have gotten much else right. The big thing that really jumps out is that they said that basically Keystone XL wouldn't make a difference one way or another to plan tar sands expansion, which is just honestly kind of ridiculous on its face. I mean, if indeed it wasn't an important pipeline and wasn't important to unlocking additional expansion in the tar sands, then why are the Canadian government and the oil industry pushing for it so hard. They know it's key to their expansion, and the fact of the matter is, so do we. Just back up for a moment and explain to us, from your view, why tar sands oil is more problematic than normal crude. 
Tar sands oil, um, or diluted bitumen as it comes down the Keystone XL pipeline, is a very, very heavy, dirty form of oil. The production of it produces three times as much greenhouse gases as does conventional oil. In addition, when it's refined, there's a significant amount of dirty, heavy material left over that gets made into something called petroleum coke or pet coke. And pet coke actually gets burned as a replacement for coal. And it's just like coal, except that it's dirtier and it's cheaper than coal. So it's really sort of bringing the worst of dirty energy down the pipe and uh, through the United States onto uh, final markets for export. What's your argument in terms of what the Keystone XL pipeline would mean in terms of climate disruption on the planet? At a minimum, the pet coke that I mentioned is an additional five coal plants worth of emissions. The oil itself is worth 50 coal plants on an annual basis. This is 830,000 barrels per day of the dirtiest crude on the planet. We absolutely have to put a cap on the amount of new fossil fuel infrastructure and new fossil fuels that we are burning. The latest climate science from the Potsdam Institute in Germany says that we have to leave at least two-thirds and probably more like four-fifths of the existing fossil fuel reserves in the world in the ground. What are the risks of spills and other damage that the pipeline itself might do coming across America? The first Keystone pipeline, Keystone 1, spilled 12 times in its first year. There has been a lot of concern about the route of the pipeline, particularly in Nebraska, where it has been rerouted, although still not adequately, according to local environmental groups and groups of farmers and ranchers there who talk about how it still crosses critical habitat in the sand hills in Nebraska. There's a lot of concern for the fact that it crosses the Oglala Aquifer, which is one of the largest freshwater aquifers we have in the United States, if not the largest. It's probably also worth noting that diluted bitumen, which is what is going to be coming down the pipe from the tar sands, is significantly more toxic than standard crude oil and is significantly harder to clean up. Now, the proponents of the Keystone XL, the company TransCanada itself, say that there are a lot of jobs here. They say uh, what, up to 120,000 jobs. What about that? The State Department actually said there would be 35, count them, 35 permanent jobs created by the Keystone XL pipeline. They did say there would be several thousand created in construction for the short term, but if our goal is to meet our energy needs and to create jobs, investing in solar, wind, and alternative technologies are a much more labor-intensive way to do it than investing in existing infrastructure around the oil industry. Steve, how do you respond to the report's finding that even if we, that is the United States, don't build the Keystone XL, Canadians will use rail or, or find a way to pipe oil to China? I mean, basically, that extracting oil from tar sands will go ahead regardless of what we in the United States might do. First and foremost, we literally have pages of quotes from oil executives and financial analysts uh, who study the industry talking about how important Keystone in particular is to their expansion. As for the other pipeline proposals, they're meeting very stiff resistance. Um, it's actually a much shorter pipeline to go out to the west coast of Canada, but they didn't choose that route because they have solid opposition from First Nations. There's also a pipeline that would go east. We've seen huge opposition to that in the eastern part of Canada and in Portland, Maine, where they're really stepping up and saying they don't want the pipeline going through there. And the rail question, which State Department 
really said, you know, well, they'll get it out by rail and it's no big deal. It's really curious that they think that because, you know, the only reported numbers on how much it's costing to take diluted bitumen down to the Gulf Coast, say it's costing about $31 a barrel. Compare that to a pipeline, which is about 8 or $9 a barrel, and you can see there's a clear financial incentive for the industry to build pipelines rather than rail. Steve Kretzman, put this all in historical perspective for me. How important is the Keystone XL pipeline case, do you think, in American history? I think this is actually an absolute watershed campaign in the environmental movement in the United States. The reality is the president's going to have to make a choice. Is it going to be the oil industry or is it going to be saving the climate for future generations? And we certainly believe and hope that uh, he will make the right choice there. Steve Kretzman is the executive director for Oil Change International. Thanks so much, Steve, for taking the time. Thank you, Steve. Canada's conservative government, which has been pressing the Obama administration to approve the Keystone XL pipeline, has come under sharp criticism for allegedly muzzling Canadian government scientists who talk about the pipeline, climate change, and other controversial topics. The Environmental Law Center at the University of Victoria released a report called Muzzling Civil Servants, a Threat to Democracy, that documents the ways in which Prime Minister Stephen Harper's administration has prevented public scientists from speaking freely about their research. The Law Center and Democracy Watch, a leading Canadian public accountability group, have requested an official inquiry into whether these practices violate Canada's open government laws. Tyler Summers is the coordinator for Democracy Watch, and he joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi. So what was the process for talking to government scientists before Prime Minister Harper took office, and what's it like now? Well, it was a much more relaxed situation. Journalists and sometimes even the general public were able to call and speak to scientists about their scientific research without much oversight of these conversations. But what we've moved toward now is a situation where when journalists call to speak to scientists, the scientists need to speak to their supervisors, speak to communications officers, or even to the minister's office to get approval to speak to these journalists about their scientific research. And sometimes this can be so specific as to require them to get approval of the very lines that they're going to send to the journalist in response to whatever questions they have. Now, what are the topics that you found are being most muzzled? The topics where there seems to be more protection are the politically sensitive ones. So things like climate change, uh, like salmon fisheries, resource extraction. But these are communications policies that apply to all federal government scientists that we were able to find in those departments. So there was a joint NASA and uh, National Research Council study into snowfall patterns. So the journalist called NASA and was able to speak to a scientist and completely get through the entire process of reaching them, having a talk, and hanging up within 15 minutes. They called our end to speak to the Canadian side of things to find out what was going on, to find out what Canada's involvement was, what the purpose was, and, and what they found. It wasn't a really a politically sensitive topic, but because of the lengthy delay, they didn't get back to the journalist until a day after the deadline. He decided that he'd file an access to information request and see what was going on, and they found 11 public servants with over 50 emails discussing various points about his request. And one point that's particularly troubling is the fact that they were discussing tone, because what that implies was that if the tone is positive, so if he was going to write something good about the government or good about the department, they would be more likely 
to let him speak to the scientist, whereas if the tone is negative, they would have been less likely. And that's particularly troubling because it, it at least implies that the government is trying to shape the information that uh, federal government scientists release. So there are a number of cases that are cited in the Environmental Law Center's study. Could you talk about uh, another one that's particularly egregious? Sure. Uh, another example of the muzzling that we uncovered, scientists who were attending the International Polar Year 2012 conference in Montreal, so this is a conference that brings together scientists from all over the world, they were told when approached by a journalist that they should ask them for their business card and tell them that you would get back to them with a time for an interview. And then what they were to do was to speak to their media relations uh, people in the department who would schedule and attend any interviews that these scientists went to. They also had media relations people follow these scientists at the conference in order to monitor what they were saying to journalists and record any conversations that they had. So insofar as you can tell, what do you think the government's motive is in doing this? The government's motive, as far as we can tell, is that they want to limit as much as possible any negative press. This is a government that ran on open government. It ran on cleaning up and making our country more democratic. And now we find that they're limiting the information that Canadians have paid for. So the reason we believe that they're doing this is they're just trying to ensure that nothing that scientists release is counter to the government message. Now, your organization, Democracy Watch, and the authors from the Environmental Law Center have written to Canada's Information Commissioner, I believe her name is Suzanne Lego, asking her to investigate these policies. What do you expect will come out of it? What we're hoping uh, will come out of it is that she'll launch a full investigation and she'll see whether this is a systemic issue or whether it's isolated to mostly the cases that we found. But one thing that the Information Commissioner has said was, in contrast to some of the government lines, that they're the most open in Canadian history, that they're far from that, and that um, providing information to the public isn't increasing, it's actually declining. And the amount of time that it's taking for the public to get information is also increasing. And that's one thing that we must consider and we must keep our eye on, is the fact that delay is a very useful tactic. If politicians are able to put off a story coming out or information coming out until after the media has moved on and they found something else to focus on, uh, they may be able to avoid accountability and avoid responsibility, by and large, for whatever actions that they've uh, taken. I understand that some scientists have actually been holding demonstrations at Ottawa in front of Parliament on this issue? Yes, there have been a number of scientists that have come together in, in different ways. There was a Death of Science um, rally recently in Ottawa on, on Parliament Hill, but the response from the science community has, has been the same. They've said that uh, the government and, and Canadians have somehow come to accept that an iron curtain around scientific research uh, is happening. Tyler Summers is coordinator for Democracy Watch. Thank you so much for taking this time. Thanks for having me. We asked the Canadian government for comment. A statement from the Honorable Gary Goodyear, Minister of State for Science and Technology, is posted in full on our website, LOE.org. It reads in part, the number of peer-reviewed articles, research reports, and data sets that are made available by federal scientists each year stand as clear evidence of our government's commitment to the scientific enterprise. Coming up, perhaps a new label for plastics. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Winter just won't let up this year, and we keep piling on the salt. Over half the states in the Union apply salt to their roads, and in fact, the United States Geological Survey reports that in 2011, nearly 20 million tons of salt were used to de-ice and keep our roads safe. But all that salt may not be so safe for our drinking water or the environment. Not long ago, reporter Ashley Ahern headed out in a snowstorm to find out more. When a recent nor'easter plastered the streets of Cambridge with white, Osiris Ochoa and Alcides Perez got to work. Are you guys putting salt on the sidewalk after? Yes. I don't know how good it is for the environment, but for the snow and the, and the ice, it's pretty good. Over 20 million tons of salt are used to clear U.S. roads each winter, far more than any other snow removal chemical or sand. It's a lot of salt. It dissolves in water, so it ends up either as runoff in our streams and rivers, or it ends up in the groundwater, or it ends up stored in soils. Chris Swan is an assistant professor in the Environmental Sciences Department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. As that increases, we're starting to see a rise in the average and peak salt concentrations in our uh, drinking water. One recent National Academy of Sciences study shows that salt concentration in fresh water is on the rise in Maryland, New Hampshire, and New York due to road salting, and could make groundwater in many areas of the Northeast undrinkable within a century. A new study from the University of Minnesota found salt levels on the rise in 39 lakes in the Midwest. Too much salt isn't good for people or, says Chris Swan, for freshwater ecosystems. When you put an organism in a high-salt environment, it becomes stressed. We notice that when we eat salty foods. Uh, we notice that when we, say, go to the beach in the summertime, you become dehydrated. When Chris Swan exposed frogs to the same levels of salt found in semi-urban watersheds, he found they didn't shrivel up and die. The salt changed the way the frogs developed. There's something very odd going on. What we're focusing on is that the time it takes for them to go from egg to adults, and we measure how large they are. And our initial studies are showing that they do that faster and when they do become adults, they tend to be slightly larger than they are when they're not exposed to salt. Swan says the frogs exposed to salt feed much more intensely during development, and this could make them easier prey in the wild, although it's too soon to tell what this might mean for survival rates or breeding. Amphibians are indicator species for freshwater ecosystems, but Swan says you've got to look to the smaller members of the aquatic food chain to get the big picture. And right now we're showing that while we see these interesting effects on the frogs and the food that they eat, we're also seeing the zooplankton be really negatively impacted. Zooplankton. Those are the tiny invertebrates that propel themselves around the water column, feeding on algae. If salt kills zooplankton, that's not just going to mean more green scum on the water. It could also mean that larger predators, like the many species of fish that feed on zooplankton, go hungry. Riding along in my automobile my baby beside me at the wheel 
Since the 40s and 50s, highway agencies in the U.S. have operated under what's called the bare pavement policy, doing whatever it takes to keep roads clear of snow and ice for motorists. It's about convenience, and perhaps no one knows that better than Brian Birch. He's the assistant executive director of the Snow and Ice Management Association. I called him up during a recent nor'easter. Hi, this is Brian. Hey, Brian, it's Ashley. Oh, hi, Ashley, how are you? Birch had been stuck in the Newark airport for the past three hours, but he was still willing to talk about the effects of salting roads. In general, the snow industry faces kind of a big challenge, the balancing environmental concerns with public safety and transportation concerns. So do you hate Mother Nature right now? Um, no, I love it. You know, this is... Um, <laughs> How long have you been sitting in that airport? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's frustrating. You know, I'm just like anybody else. Uh, basically, if you think about it, we live in a culture of convenience where we want to be able to go about our daily lives and be able to do anything we want to do, even if it snowed eight inches outside. As Birch said, snow removal is a critical public safety issue. Over 115,000 accidents happened under winter driving conditions in 2006. However, a growing number of scientists, like Chris Swan, are highlighting the effects of adding over 20 million tons of salt to the environment each winter, and they're calling for smarter salting techniques. Salt is still by far the cheapest and most readily available de-icer, but some cities and towns are looking into alternatives. Akron, Ohio uses beet juice, and several towns in Connecticut and New York add high-fructose corn syrup and molasses to their salt. All in the name of keeping winter roads safer for motorists and frogs alike. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. Every year, humans produce nearly 280 million tons of plastic. And much of that plastic ends up in the environment, harming marine life and other ecosystems. Now a group of scientists has a potential solution. Writing in Nature magazine, they argue that reclassifying plastics as hazardous waste would give regulators more tools and funding to clean the place up. One of the authors, Chelsea Rockman, a marine ecologist at the University of California at Davis, says it's clear that plastics need a new label. Waste is basically separated into two categories, those that are non-hazardous, like grass clippings, and those that are considered a hazard, which are often based upon this long list of priority pollutants or substances that the government deems as hazardous to organisms. And we found that plastics are associated with 78% of these priority pollutants um, listed by the US EPA and 61% listed by the European Union, either as a chemical ingredient of the plastic itself or when the plastic ends up in the aquatic environment, they absorb these contaminants from the water. And so from that perspective, we thought maybe plastic as a waste product should also be considered as a hazardous substance. What's the danger? We don't know an awful lot about the ecological hazards of plastics themselves. But we know a lot about the hazards associated with these priority pollutants. There's a, a vast amount of peer-reviewed literature on this. And so we know that these priority pollutants, when they get into food webs and into um, ecosystems, that they can cause harm at organism level, population level. And so we're concerned that if these plastics are another vessel for these priority pollutants to be getting into habitats, that they also may cause harm. Quickly, uh, list for me the priority pollutants. So for the ones that are ingredients of plastics themselves, so styrene, which is the monomer for styrofoam, 
uh, vinyl chloride, which is the monomer, the building block for PVC, polyvinyl chloride, those are both considered priority pollutants and they're flagged as being carcinogenic or potentially estrogenic for styrene. Some of the ones that are absorbing from the environment are things like toxic metals like copper or lead and pesticides such as DDT that a lot of us are familiar with from the work of Rachel Carson and PAHs, which are maybe less familiar, but they're an industrial byproduct that come from the combustion of oil. And a lot of them are considered either carcinogenic or they can cause harm to the reproduction system. Depends on the chemical, what their hazard is. So what are you recommending? So what we're recommending is to start off with a policy change that will enable a domino effect. So what we're expecting first is that if we consider these plastics as a hazardous substance or hazardous once they end up in the environment, certain policies like in the U.S., for instance, CERCLA or Superfund, would be able to actually use funding to go in there and clean it up. So, for example, let's take the Hawaiian Islands where a lot of the plastic from the middle of the gyres or the garbage patches are washing up. And so we know there's large accumulations of plastic item on the beaches there. If plastics are considered a hazardous substance, the EPA then has legislation to go in and clean up that area and use funding and litigation to prevent further debris from accumulating. Let's talk some numbers with plastics. How much plastic do we produce every year and how much of it uh, is not taken care of? So at the moment, in 2011, we produced 280 million tons of plastic and that's globally. That same year, the um, World Bank reported that they collected in the waste stream, so they accounted for either in landfills or recycling, 130 million tons of plastic. So that leaves 150 million tons unaccounted for. Now, obviously, a lot of that plastic is still, you know, on our feet as shoes or on our computers, in our houses, but all of it cannot still be in use. So it makes you wonder, where is that other 150 million tons of plastic? And so we know there's large accumulations in the environment. So I think that's troublesome because how much are we adding every year? And that's a question we don't know the answer to yet. Where is this worst? What ecosystems are, are being threatened by this? Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't know. We still need a lot of research to determine this. But areas where we find a lot of plastic debris are, of course, you know, we hear an awful lot about it in the middle of the open ocean, but there's a lot of it near the coasts. And so where I would argue is that near coastal ecosystems is probably where we want to concentrate because that's where we have the largest accumulations of these pollutants in the water, which could potentially sorb to this plastic as it enters the water. And so we'd find plastics in these coastal ecosystems that are near urban areas that are going to be associated with large concentrations of, say, pesticides and the PAHs I talked about earlier and uh, toxic metals. So you remember um, famously in the movie The Graduate, uh, yep. Dustin Hoffman is told, plastics, young man, plastics. So what would we tell Dustin Hoffman today, his character? I mean, what would we replace plastic with? I'm so happy that you asked that question. It used to be how we began and ended the paper. So there's a famous line in that movie that says, plastics are the future, right? Or the future is plastics. And I would say that that's not necessarily untrue. I still think there is a great future in plastics. And I don't think that plastics are evil and we should ban them all. But I think that we should start thinking about making plastic materials that are benign by design and use our innovation strategies to make products that are recyclable, reusable, and durable, and that are safe for people on the planet. Chelsea Rockman is a marine ecologist who studies toxicology at the University of California, Davis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Throughout Rome, Catholic cardinals in their scarlet vestments have been cited as they gather to choose a new pope. And throughout New England, the bird that shares their name has become a commonplace sight as climate change has extended its range. But as writer Mark Seth Lender recalls, that wasn't always the case. The cardinal points his voice toward north, coloratura then recitativo, in the red bud maple rush of spring, when all the small and not yet green shoots upward from hard winter ground. He finds, by a navigation no one knows, a place to build a nest. He calls his own, his love, to lay her perfect eggs and sit with him there. He sings the sun to its pivot point, then quiets down, a pause to mark beginnings and one to mark the end. In fall, towards dusk, when cold clothes the rising moon in an icy throw and every leaf has gone, he sings again that the young he fathers come to understand the words a cardinal knows. When I was a child, never saw him, not one, not once except for the picture book where C was not cat, not cup, not car. C was for cardinal. Phoenix read somewhere beyond the confine of a child's four walls. Not till my teens did I catch that flash of voice, that blur among the branches of a tree-lined street long before cardinal's rare flame became a year-round commonplace. Never commonplace to me. Cardinal Timid to the light, prefers the almost dark of dawn, the end of color at the dropping down of night. Behind the curtain of the shortest day, familiar notes ring out when cardinal dreams, perhaps like me, of journeys not yet made and mountains not yet crossed, of molten desert sands and the slinking edge of permafrost. Mark Seth Lender made this recording at Hammonasset Beach State Park in Madison, Connecticut. There's a robin and a cardinal and then a red-winged blackbird. Mark's book is Salt Marsh Diary. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Kainat Khan, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. 
the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.